Part of America's story lies in the name she has given to her land. The rivers, creeks, mountains, mining camps, villages, whistle stops. There's a poetry here, the poetry of a people who, before they picked up their rifles, covered their fires and moved on, somehow had to give a name to the land they stopped on, the site they camped on. Some of the names looked to the past, some to the future. Some were built of dreams, but each name has a story. Follow the men with the long rifles, from Angel's Camp and Archer's Hope, to Beaver Pond and Fiddle Town. Watch the fires spring up on Quack Hill and Robber's Roost, Chicken Thief Flats, Utopia. They're pulling out from Bachelor's Hope, Anthony's Nose, Birth Creek, and Dragon Rocks. Wagons rolling on from Broken Top and Battle Mountain, Poverty Hill, and Hungry Camp. Americans moving on from Shirt Tail Canyon and Dreaming Creek, picking up their rifles, covering their fires, forging the American landscape, and vanishing. The wagons are gone, the footprints have disappeared. Only the names remain. Thursday, January 18th, 1906. Coney Island, Brooklyn. We're at an area called Seagate near Norton's Point in the Coney Island Lighthouse. Guglielmo Marconi has recently set up a wireless telegraphy station here. The team is about to send their first telegraph to Captain Hayes of the Majestic, the White Star Ocean Liner. Outside is a 150-foot-tall mast. Wires connect from its top to the control room. Its receiving apparatus can handle incoming messages from any distance. This station formed the final link in Marconi's chain, connecting all Atlantic liners with the shore up to 70 hours away at sea. The call letters are SE. A 10-word message from an American ship costs a dollar. Foreign ships, 40 cents extra. By 1906, this four-mile-long, half-mile-wide peninsula on the southwestern end of Long Island was home to private resorts called the Brighton and Manhattan Beach, to amusement parks called Steeplechase Luna and Dreamland, and to numerous restaurants, bathhouses, independent amusements, a racetrack, and collections of objects, people, and creatures unseen together anywhere else in the modern world. From the point of Coney's development in the last half of the 19th century, the eastern part had been the most expensive. The west was the cheapest and most dangerous. But the area was rapidly changing. Thanks in part to Coney Island, the world was getting smaller. The resort era was coming to an end. The following year, gambling was outlawed, and soon upper-class regality gave way to working-class pandemonium. The Marconi Company operated this station at Seagate until World War I, when the U.S. Navy gained control of all American Marconi outposts. 
a decade after World War I, wireless telegraphy had become radio broadcasting. Movies, public transportation, and the automobile helped change Coney Island's demographic. A nickel now brought you here from anywhere in New York City. On blistering summer days, upwards of one million people could be found sea bathing, eating new and old delicacies, and at night, staring up in wonder at what the newspapers labeled the electric city. The entire world knew Coney. The radio soon followed. I don't know if I understand it. I started back in the days when Guglielmo Marconi started, I think. <laughs> now, I've been in it a long time. This is, how many years have I been? Over 50 years. And it goes back to the days when I first started, and everybody says, how did you ever get into radio? How did you ever get into radio? I forgot. <laughs> I got in, and I guess I was going to school at the time, and if, if any of you know New York City, there is a bedroom called Brooklyn, where we lived. And there is an additional place called Coney Island. And a friend of mine, were walking on the boardwalk, a friend of myself, walking on the boardwalk in Coney Island, when we got to... Uh, the Half Moon Hotel, and on the floor, on the on the uh, the basement floor, there were a couple of stores, and one of them had the letters WCGU. And I said to this friend of mine, "What do you suppose that is?" He said, "I think it's a radio station." I said, "Oh!" And at that point, a guy came running out and said, "Can anybody here do anything?" And this fellow pointed to me and he says, "He plays piano," and he grabbed me, threw me into this studio which looked like a house of ill repute. It had velvet drapes all around, a solitary piano, and there was a microphone on a stand, and this was known as a carbon mic, a big round mic, and there was, the actual mic itself was suspended on rubber bands. And the man came up to the mic, tapped it to get the carbons all settled, and said, ladies and gentlemen, we now present that distinguished concert pianist, Mr. Paul Hart. And I looked around and said, who the hell is he talking about? You know. <laughs> He said, what are you going to play? I said, well, I'm going to play Dizzy Fingers, and uh, it had to be you and a few other jazzy things. And he said, wait a minute, you've got to play something classical. I said, oh, I'll play the Minute Waltz by Chopin, a little Bach fugue, and a Beethoven sonata. Mr. Hart opens his programs today with... Oh, when the sun is down and burns the tar up on the roof And your shoes get so hot, you wish your tired feet were fireproof. I'm there for down by the sea, on a blanket with my babies, where I'll be. Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode 92. My name is James Scully. Today on Breaking Walls, we say hello to summer with a trip to Coney Island. Many a baptism, both religious and social, has taken place in these waters. For eight generations, Coney has been a place of budding romance, unbridled fun, sex, drugs, and some of the highest highs and lowest lows. The smells have been salt water, hot dogs, cigars, and alcohol. The sounds have been amusements, carnival barkers, screams, laughter, seagull cries, and transistor radios. Coney Island is part of the American lexicon, and much of its 20th century arc mirrors that of the radio. Both attracted crowds in numbers unseen or heard before, and both 
went from boom to bust after World War II as Americans, backed by the GI Bill, moved out to their suburban homes on highway roads driving new cars, where they watched new television sets. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this series on every podcasting platform and at thewallbreakers.com. Tonight's opening theme song was blasted from many a radio at Coney Island. It's Under the Boardwalk by The Drifters, a Cashbox number one hit in the summer of 1964. If you're on Facebook, join our Wallbreakers Facebook group to keep in touch with news like Burning Gotham, our completely original audio drama series in development. It will be set in 1830s New York City and debut later this year. Listen to the teaser at thewallbreakers.com. You can also support these shows for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. The man who got his radio start at Coney Island was famed announcer Andre Baruch. When he got finished, he said, you want a job? I said, doing what? He said, playing piano. I said, well, I'm, I go to school, you know, I go to college and I, I just can't take time off. He said, well, we don't start here till about four o'clock. If you come in here and play, say, at 3.30, 4 o'clock on, he said, we'll give you $25 a week. Well, in 1929 or 28, with 29, I guess, it was just about during the Depression, $25 a week was a fortune. I grabbed it. And I played piano and had a great time. And eventually I had to make a decision as to whether I wanted to play piano, become an illustrator because I had studied art at the L'Ecole de Beaux-Arts in Paris, or uh, possibly stay in radio. By the beginning of the Great Depression, Coney's old railroads had been connected with the New York City subway. It was now a day tripper's paradise. Remaining businesses were forced to offer cheap amusements to survive. Coney Island's days as a high-class resort and hotel destination were over. Dreamland burned down in 1911, and Luna Park was soon taken over by creditors, although it lasted until the 1940s. George C. Tillieu, owner of Steeplechase Park, weathered numerous economic downturns by understanding that people enjoyed being entertained by other people. He offered a very economical 25-ride combination ticket for a quarter, while his competition was charging at least 10 cents or more for most individual attractions. Many of his rides placed people in communal situations where spontaneous humor occurred in a funhouse environment. Reactions from other patrons would be different every time, keeping the experience fresh. A similar mindset populated radio broadcasting. Vaudeville entertainers from Coney's golden era were now working in the new medium. By the summer of 1941, as the news of war in Europe dominated America's headlines, the Great Depression was beginning to wane, and network radio revenue was a record $125 million. That year, Coney's famed boardwalk was extended further east into Manhattan Beach. It now spanned most of the island's four-mile width. Radio's most topical humorist could be found at Coney on a June day, 
He was a Bostonian named Fred Allen, and he was being hurt each week by roughly 12 million people. Presenting that ambidextrous antique, ad-living on Dante aphorisms, articulating a la carte axioms, alkalizing anemic absurdities, Allentine's affable Aesop, adversities amiable askew ball, Fred Allen in person! <laughs> Thank you, thank you. <laughs> and good evening, ladies and gentlemen. You mustn't yell so loud, Andre. You woke me up. You see, now, I generally talk in my sleep through the whole hour. Now you woke me up. I don't know what's up to happen. Well, here it is, June 1st. And what is so rare as a day in June, unless it's a new joke on a radio program? And while we're trying to think up a new joke for this evening, I'll read you the town hall bulletin for tonight. Hodge White... The first grocer to ever put bifocal cellophane on apple pie so that nearsighted customers could see what the lower crust looks like <laughs> has a special announcement. Hodge is calling your attention to his little dandy soda siphon, folks. Now, Hodge says people are using soda siphons to make everything but soda these days. I used to joke about a fellow up in Boston who had a little variety store up there, Hodge White, and we mentioned his name for the fun of it to show him what sort of publicity he could get in the new medium. And it worked out very well. He didn't pay for anything. We just used to mention him every week. And he would keep you tuned, of course, while, uh, while you were oh, on yes. the Oh, yes. That time we had the show called Town Hall Tonight. And he used to have our program on every week, 9 to 10 it was. He had some problems in there because his meat slicer used to put static in his radio, so you couldn't buy any meat there from 9 to 10. And what kind of reaction did he get? Well, it made a lot of trouble for him. People came all from around the country and out to New England to look at his store and to get his autograph and then disturb him at his work. He saw the power of the medium and didn't want any part of it. Pedestrian estates these days, Portland, and that's down in Allen's Alley. Shall we go? As the bathtub said to the open faucet, I think I shall run over. Ah, <laughs> uh, gosh, Portland, isn't it good to get back to Allen's Alley? Say, the senator must be going away. Look, his mules are hitched to the buckboard out back of the house there. Well, let's knock. Somebody, I say, somebody knock. Well, uh, <laughs> Senator Claghorn leaving town? I got my mules fed, watered, and hitched, son. I'm going to Texas. Dallas, that is. Well, what's doing in Dallas, Senator? Next Wednesday is Claghorn Day. Claghorn Day. What a celebration. Big doings, eh? The Corn Cadets, the biggest hillbilly band in the world, 2,000 boys playing jugs will be there to welcome me. What song will they play? Shoe Fly Pie and Texas Panhandle. Uh, <laughs> well, tell me, are you taking the train to Dallas, Senator? No, I'm speeding there for Buckboard. I'm leaving Washington. Yeah? I'm swinging up to Toronto. Yes? Over across Illinois and Iowa to Nebraska. Yes? Then I'm veering down through Colorado and Santa Fe. Yeah? Taking a left turn at Abilene, I'm coming through Cleburne and Mineral Wells smack into Dallas. But why take this roundabout route, Senator? Son, it's the only way I can get to Dallas without setting foot on that Lincoln Highway. Well, tell me, Senator, what is your reaction to this Coney Island reopening? Coney Island, I say, Coney Island is the watering place of the South. The South? When I go to Coney Island, I'll see them Frankforts. Frankfort is the capital of Kentucky. Yeah. <laughs> I stuff my 
myself with that Cracker Jack. Georgia Cracker, that is. Yeah, 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 yeah I yeah. taste that yummy pie and ice cream, Texas style. Pie with ice cream, Texas style? Pie Alamo, son. Alamo. <laughs> when I'm ready to swim, I grab my fear sucker water wings and plunge into that southern water. Southern water at Coney Island? That's the Atlanta Ocean, son. So <laughs> Today, Coney Island consists of four neighborhoods running from east to west, Manhattan Beach, Brighton Beach, West Brighton, and Seagate. The western portion of the island has three major east-west avenues, Neptune, Mermaid, and Surf, while the eastern portion has two, Shore Boulevard and Oriental Boulevard, named for the resorts that pave the land. Its main north-south streets of entry are Cropsey Avenue, Stillwell Avenue, Shell Road, Ocean Parkway, and Coney Island Avenue. So, what exactly is a Coney? Native inhabitants of the region, the Lenape, called this area the Land Without Shadows for its continuous direct sunlight. The Dutch named it Konya, or Rabbit Island for its widespread population. The British later anglicized the name to Coney. In 1829, the Gravesend and Coney Island Road and Bridge Company built a road and bridge connecting Coney Island with mainland Long Island. They next built the Coney Island House, the area's first hotel, near present-day Seagate. Five years later, the six towns of Bushwick, Brooklyn, Flatlands, Gravesend, Flatbush, and New Utrecht received a charter to become the city of Brooklyn. By the 1840s, hotel owner and politician Michael Norton was sponsoring a ferry that docked at today's Norton's Point in Seagate. On the beach near a makeshift pier and pavilion, gambling took place beyond the reach of regulation. Prostitution was rampant, and murder wasn't uncommon. Men sold steamed clams, and chowder became the go-to food for sale. After the steamship reduced travel time to just a few hours, wealthy New Yorkers began to eye the eastern end of the island. In the 1870s, resorts named the Manhattan, Brighton, and Oriental Hotel opened. New roads and elevated railways connected New York's growing population. Soon master carousel builder Charles Loof built an amusement ride at Vanderveer's Bathhouse at West 6th Street and Surf Avenue. And in 1876, the centerpiece of the Philadelphia Exhibition, a 300-foot-high observation tower, was moved to Coney. It was the tallest structure in the United States. On Brighton Beach, a racetrack opened in 1879, followed by Rice and Weber's Brighton Beach Casino, where Japanese waitresses in full traditional regalia served drinks to wealthy patrons. 
in the next decade, James V. Lafferty opened a seven-story hotel in the shape of an elephant at the corner of Surf Avenue and West 12th. The amusement era had officially begun. Paul Boynton opened Sea Lion Park, and George C. Tillieu opened Steeplechase. Coney Island became the top vacation destination in the United States for both wealthy and middle-class Americans looking to experience the wild and never-before-seen. Radio Theater brings you Alan Ladd, Dorothy L'Amour, and Chester Morris in Coney Island. Ladies and gentlemen, your producer, Mr. Cecil B. DeMille. Greetings from Hollywood, ladies and gentlemen. And step right this way for an hour of mirth and melody and romance. On the inside of this theater, a stupendous attraction. Straight from the bright lights of Hollywood. Not one, not two, but three glittering stars. Well, I'm afraid as a barker, I can't really do justice to my subject. But the simple facts are enough anyway. Because tonight, we bring you Alan Ladd, Dorothy L'Amour, and Chester Morris in the great 20th Century Fox musical hit, Coney Island. For all of you who put in a hard day's work, here's the perfect way to relax. It won't solve a single post-war problem, and it has nothing to do with boundaries or politics. Coney Island is just pure, unadulterated entertainment, with Alan Ladd and Chester Morris involved in a furious feud for the affections of Dorothy L'Amour. And Dorothy singing such catchy tunes of my boyhood as Put Your Arms Around Me, Honey, and Cuddle Up a Little Closer. I remember Coney Island and the days when we traveled down New York Bay by boat to get there or drove down Ocean Parkway in Brooklyn by horse and carriage. Of course, that was some years BLF. That's before Lux Flakes. On Monday, April 17th, 1944, at 9 p.m. Eastern Time on CBS, the Lux Radio Theater presented an adaptation of the film Coney Island. It starred Dorothy L'Amour as Kate Farley, Chester Morris as Joe Rocco, and Alan Ladd as Eddie Johnson. That month, Lux's rating was 23.9, Monday's highest. Vincent Price was often a guest star. It was really extraordinary. Cecil B. DeMille was the host, and uh, William Keeley, and, and different people, you know, I mean, very distinguished directors. And the fact that it, all of the money went to the Actors' Fund was very impressive. Besides, I suppose it had one of the biggest listening audiences of all time. And these dramas were rehearsed like plays. You know, you rehearsed a full week. Today in New York, the closest spot to heaven probably is the top of the Empire State Building. But 40 years ago, New Yorkers came closest to paradise at a breeze-swept beach on the Atlantic Ocean. Only a short distance from the hot and throbbing city, they found a land whose milk and honey was clam chowder and steaming weenies, a place of perpetual carnival, of singing waiters and persuasive barkers, a little raucous, a little rowdy, but nevertheless beautiful Coney Island. 
One spring afternoon, a young man named Eddie Johnson makes his first visit to Coney Island. Eddie has plans for a big business deal involving an old acquaintance, Joe Rocco, owner of the Scenic Gardens Cafe. Well, this is quite a surprise, Eddie. Yeah, a nice place you got here, Joe. A little different from those shooting galleries we used to have, huh, Eddie? Once we had a whole carnival, remember? Uh, vaguely. Yeah, then two years ago in St. Louis, we had an argument about how the carnival should be run. We decided to play a hand of poker for the whole works. <laughs> yes, and I won it with three of the prettiest aces you ever saw. Yeah, I've been trying to find you ever since, Joe. I, I wanted to give you these. I found them the next morning under the cushion of your chair. Four of the prettiest aces you ever saw. Well, Eddie, I, uh, I guess this makes up for all those times I went to the cash drawer and found your hand in it. Now, uh, now why don't we just forget the whole business, huh? Oh, I've tried to forget it, Joe. I've tried and tried. You going to sue me? No, but I figure that since you cheated me out of our carnival, we're really still partners, and that means I own half of this joint. Well, uh, uh, there's just one hitch, Eddie. I, uh, I don't figure the same way. Well, in that case, I'll just have to worm myself in, Joe, one way or another. I'm sorry to hear that. Oh, but I just got to pay you back, Joe. If I didn't, I'd lose all my self-respect. I just wanted to show you my new dress, Joe. How do you... Oh, it's all right, honey. The, the man's just leaving. This is Eddie Johnson, Kate Farley. She's, uh, she's my singer here. Oh, hello, Miss Farley. How do you do? Oh, the dress looks wonderful, Kate. Hey, we are. Look at the feathers. It'll be a nice dress when it gets through molding. Go on, Eddie. Push off. You, uh, you won't change your mind, huh? No, sorry. All right, suit yourself, Joe. Oh, uh, Miss Farley. Yes? When you take that dress off, you better hang it up in the birdcage. Listen, you smart aleck, I've had just With all those feathers, you know, it's liable to fly away. Goodbye, Miss Farley. You can't afford to miss it. You just can't afford to miss it. It's only ten cents. Hurry, hurry, hurry. Come in and see her. She's Josephine, the tattooed lady. She's covered with artistic masterpieces. You'll see Gainsborough's blue boy talking things over with Whistler's mother. You'll see the leading tower of Pisa. Come in and marvel at this. But crash it up. Tis Eddie. Eddie Johnson. Eddie, you old son of a gun. Frankie and Finnegan. Hey, you're looking great. Why not? He's preserved in alcohol. <laughs> Not since the Chicago Fair have I looked upon you. Oh, say this calls for a celebration. Yeah, but tell me, is uh, is this your pitch? Yeah, I'm sorry to say it's mine. All mine. Well, what in the world are you doing at Coney Island? From the looks of business, nothing. Eddie, have you seen Joe yet? Joe Rocco? Yeah, I just came from there. Teaming up with Joe again, are you? No, not just yet, Finnegan. I'm looking for a new partner, Frankie. You interested? Eddie, I ain't got what only nine bucks to my hand. Well, listen to me and you'll be rolling in dough. Huh? I've got an idea for a pitch that's worth a fortune. Well, that's great. Go and open it up, but let me alone. But every good location is taken. This would be just a spot for it, Frankie. Hurry, hurry, hurry. The only tattooed woman on Coney Island. Every time she shakes, moving pictures. Now, look, will you listen to me? We can have it ready in two days' time and for less than $300. But I just told you I got exactly I've got nine. the money. All I want from you is its location and your time. Eddie, you just made yourself a deal. After six months with Josephine, even suicide would look good to me. Come on, lads. Let's have a beer and talk it over. Dolly, would you look at that? In 1944, program host and famed director Cecil B. DeMille was at odds with the American Federation of Radio Actors because of a ballot proposal called Proposition 12. New partner, is it? Come on, Dolly. We're going over there. Us at a show like that? You bet. Here's my it threatened unions by making California a right-to-work state. If passed, it would have allowed any non-union member to work in radio at a reduced scale. 
AFRA, chose to take $1 from every union member to fight the bill. DeMille was sympathetic to union ideals. He just disagreed with being forced to donate to the cause. An authentic and educational exhibition with genuine oriental music is played by Abu Mandeb. A Turkish gentleman seated there before you on the Persian carpet. Listen, friends, listen to it. Hey, that's Frankie, ain't it? Playing just like a snake charmer. Of course it is. He looks as much like a Turk as you do. Would you look at him buy those tickets? These guys are making a fortune. Stand back, Dolly. I'm going to go to work. Only eight seats left. Hurry, hurry, hurry. Oh, Frankie. Hello, Frankie. Huh? Oh, hello, honey. Glad to see you. <laughs> I'm amazed, gents. Amazed. Abu arrived in this country only two days ago, and already he speaks a few words of English. <laughs> All right, little lady. Kindly move along now. Kindly move along. He used to talk to me plenty when we were working together over at the... Ixnay on the Akin Crane. Yes, Sabu. Yasmeorum dastam bayuk. You do, huh? It's mesdin taplori pursuk. All right, Abu. I'll ask you. Young lady, Abu here can't figure out why you're wearing that atrocity on your head. He says it can't be a hat or can't. <laughs> Abu says, did lady lose election bet or did lady fall into fruit salad? Kate, we better get out of here. The nerve. The nerve of that bum. Wait till I tell Joe. The argument dragged through late 1944. Eventually, the courts ruled against DeMille, and he left the show on January 22, 1945. Actor Lawrence Dobkin remembered that time. I know I, I went to work on Ten Commandments eight months or nine months after the AFRA board had lifted Cecil B. DeMille's membership mm-hmm. ticket. You remember? Mm-hmm. Because DeMille wouldn't pay the $2 strike assessment. He felt no union should have the privilege. And he stuck to his guns and we lifted his card and he lost this job of being the host of Lux Radio Theater. Mm-hmm. He was the host. Then Fred, then Keeley took it over. And I went to work on Ten Commandments as an actor for DeMille, and he kept staring at me, and finally he said, aren't you a member of AFRA? I said, yes, sir. Are you on the board? I said, yes, sir. He said, hmm, hmm. I don't think we should pursue this discussion. I said, no, sir. I agree with you. It was later said that DeMille was a man who wouldn't have taken a million dollars for his Lux job. But he gave it up for just one. Well, let's try, um, let's try Mr. Moody. Howdy, Bob. (laughs) Tell me, Mr. Moody, how do you feel about Coney Island opening? I only went to Coney Island once. It ruined my whole life. Well, how? Well, about 20 years ago, I sold my collection of speckled bird's eggs. I see. And I took the money and went to Coney Island. You were going to have a good time, eh? I hid the world by the tail, and I wasn't letting go. Well, what happened? Well, as soon as I got off the train, a fellow sold me a red balloon. Yeah? Another fellow pinned a button on me that said, Chicken Inspector. (laughs) 
You were running wild, eh? I went into a place called the Funhouse. Yeah. A gust of wind shot up my pants leg. Wind was strong, hey? Blew my union suit up under my arms. <laughs> what happened next? Gypsy. Gypsy told my fortune. Yeah. Gypsy said I'd be poor before I knew it. And you were? When I stepped out of that gypsy's tent, my long beaded pocketbook was gone. <laughs> Well, you had some day. Yeah, long about sundown, I went into a place that said Tunnel of Love. Tunnel of Love, huh? Yeah, I was sitting in a boat next to a girl. Yeah? It was pitch black in the tunnel. I couldn't see nothing. Uh-huh. All of a sudden, I heard kissing. You... <laughs> you heard kissing, hey? Yeah. The boat come out into the light. Yes? The girl's veil was up. Uh-huh. My mustache was wet. <laughs> What, uh, what did you do? Do what could I do? I married her. Oh. <laughs> Fine. She, she was the homeliest woman that ever wore gaiters. <laughs> really? On account of Coney Island, my whole life was ruined. And the moral is? If you're a single man at Coney Island... Yes? And you're going through the tunnel of love... Yes? For Pete's sake, carry a lantern. So long, <laughs> Saturday, May 27th, 1911. Memorial Day opening weekend. It's 1.30 in the morning and we're at Dreamland Park. Owners have poured thousands of dollars into renovations. The park has been repainted cream and firehouse red and is lit by over one million lights. Workers are finishing changes at Hellgate, a ride that takes visitors on a boat over rushing waters through dim, demonic caverns. haste to get everything ready for the open, something went wrong with the electricity and light bulbs began to explode. All at once, the lights flickered and the men were plunged into darkness. A nearby worker accidentally kicked over a bucket of hot tar, igniting Hellgate into flames. Most of the buildings at Dreamland Park were constructed using a combination of highly flammable wood, hemp, and plaster. Chaos ensued. Thirty minutes later, the entire park was engulfed in fire. Animals escaped, running in every direction. A lion named Black Prince rushed into the streets and had to be shot by police. More than 400 men fought the blaze. The new high-pressure water pumping station at West 12th Street and Neptune Avenue, built just for something like this, failed. By daybreak, Dreamland and much of the surrounding independent amusements were reduced to smoldering rubble. The loss was more than $5.2 million. Little was insured. Overnight, more than 2,500 people lost their jobs. 
Dreamland was never rebuilt. On a positive note, the babies in Dreamland's incubators, some with polio, were saved by the heroic efforts of Sergeant Frederick Klink of the NYPD, who made several trips into the burning structures to rescue the infants. Whispers in the dark Ooh, shadows in the Connie Boswell Show with Buddy Lester, Lloyd Schaefer and his orchestra, yours truly, Jack McCarthy, and here comes Connie herself. Well, my philosophy is very uh, simple, I think. Many people listening in do not know it or have forgotten it, but I had polio when I was three years old, and I was paralyzed from the top of my head right down to my toe. I couldn't move anything. They had to feed me through a tube. When I was four years old, Lee, let's face it, that was not exactly last Tuesday. We didn't have all these vaccines and iron lungs, and we didn't have the knowledge that they have today. And of course, they're still working on it, but they knew nothing about it when I was a child. So my mother just started in a kind of a logical way, and she started trying to make me crawl all over again to get the strength back. And within about six months after I had polio, the strength in my arms came back a little bit. And as I said, my family are musical. Mother wanted me to study cello, all classical music. And of course, the practicing, you know, and I loved it. I adored it. I think practicing the cello helped bring a lot of strength back into my arms. I believe that that's a good philosophy in itself. People who well, who even aren't handicapped or don't know that they're handicapped because in my way of thinking, everyone is handicapped in some way or other. If a fine violinist has to get in a ring with a trained prize fighter, he is definitely handicapped one way or other. But the so-called handicapped people who have had accidents or blind people or can't hear, you just have to work twice as hard or sometimes ten times harder. I know going by myself, I have had to work so much harder than the average person. When I'd play theaters, the Roxy in uh, New York City. They had big production numbers, and they didn't want you sitting low in a wheelchair, so we got an idea where I would sit on a tall cocktail stool and put the dress around, and I learned to kick my feet out so that when I'd come with two course boys bringing me out all dressed up that I looked like I was walking at the time. And my, my philosophy is that everyone has a certain amount of talent. God gives us all something, and we must seek to find out what that something is and just work as hard as we can to do the best we can with what we've got. And we must be able to face obstacles and try to climb over them. As someone said many, many years ago before all of us, obstacles are only stepping stones to success. <laughs> Never mind, Lloyd. Hello, Connie. Gee, you're looking mighty sunburned tonight. Where'd you get the tan? Oh, I went down to Coney Island yesterday, Jack. Well, how'd you get out there, by subway? No, no, I took one of those share-the-ride taxicabs. Share-the-ride taxicabs? Yeah, Jack, it was pretty crowded, too. In fact, it was so crowded, I asked the driver what the big idea was. What did he say? Well, he said he was releasing a bus for active service. But I really had a lot of fun down there at Coney Island. Oh, I'll bet you did, Connie. You know, I was in Coney Island just last year, and I had a lot of fun, too. That is, except for one thing. Mm -hmm. Connie, the freak show was a fake. <laughs> 
Oh, how do you mean? Well, the man said he was going to show the only two-headed boy in existence. And you couldn't expect me to believe that. Why not? Well, how could he be the only two-headed boy in existence? My brother was still in Chicago. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Jack, stop your kidding. Now, you know you don't have a two-headed brother. Or do you? That's a story, and a pretty tall one at that. And say, that reminds me, I have a story, too. It's all about the fellow on a furlough. Connie Boswell was born on December 3, 1907 in Kansas City, Missouri. Although polio left her in a wheelchair, she sang with her sisters and in the 1930s had multiple hit records with Bing Crosby. Ella Fitzgerald once said that it was Connie Boswell whom she emulated. At the beginning of 1944, the newly independent Blue Network was in search of stars with name value. They gave Connie her own show. It debuted on January 12th. The series featured announcer Jack McCarthy and comedian Buddy Lester with music by the Lloyd Schaefer Orchestra. Their summer solstice episode on June 21st was aptly called Coney Island. Jack, I'm really beat. Boy, that Coney Island really knocked me out. Connie, I bet you saw just about everything in Coney Island. Sure did, Jack. And guess who I saw on the beach with a girl? Who? Our funny thin man, Buddy Lester. Buddy Lester with a girl? Right. Are you kidding? The only way Buddy Lester can get a girl to chase him is to steal her nylons. (laughs) Now, don't laugh, Jack. They were really having a wonderful time on the beach. Making love? No, mud pies. You hear that, Lloyd? <laughs> Buddy Lester spends his time making mud pies. What are you laughing at? They taste pretty good. <laughs> Look, fellas, when we get there, don't tell him that I was there, too, because I want to have a little fun. Okay, Connie, but here he comes now. Buddy Mud Pie Lester! Hello, Connie. Hello, Jack. Brother, did I have a time at Coney Island? Hey, buddy, why didn't you tell me you were going to Coney Island? I would have gone along with you. Well, I didn't plan to go. I just happened to be standing in front of a subway station. A big crowd came along, and before I knew it, (laughs) Coney Island. (laughs) And boy, is it crowded on that beach. Well, did you ever see Coney Island when it wasn't crowded, buddy? You're not kidding, Connie. I've been going there for seven years. (laughs) I still haven't seen the water. (laughs) But did I have a time? I was about the handsomest guy on the beach. Hundreds. Hundreds, mind you, of girls were flocking around me. Hundreds of girls? Now, wait a minute, buddy. I was at Coney Island, and I didn't see you with any hundreds of girls. Who do you like better, Dick Tracy or the Summer Sisters? <laughs> okay, let's get back to the script. Hey, Connie, but how did you like that bathing suit I was wearing? Oh, swell. But don't you think the sleeves were a little long? <laughs> well, maybe. But the stockings were a good fit. <laughs> But that's nothing. You should have seen what some of those girls were wearing. Well, what are the girls showing at the beach this year, bud? Almost everything. (laughs) 
You know, give some of those girls an inch, they got a bathing suit. <laughs> and the crazy things those girls do at the beach, why, one of them even went in the water. <laughs> I saw... Thank you. I... <laughs> You know, I saw a brunette walking around all day with a bottle of peroxide in her hand. A brunette with peroxide? Sure. She was trying to establish a bleach head. <laughs> Say, buddy, uh, Connie was telling On the day the episode aired, Steeplechase Park was closed. Edward Tillieu, son of the late George C. Tillieu, passed away after a long illness on June 19th. Steeplechase remained closed for the following three days. You know my girl. You know that. Two months later, on August 12th, 1944, a fire gutted nearly half of Luna Park. A dozen main attractions were destroyed. Unfortunately, building materials were strictly rationed because of World War II. Luna's owners charged a dime to view the ruins. The park would never fully reopen. The world's greatest fun frolic, with its beach miles long, all peppered with people. The place where merriment is king. In 1946, Luna Park's land was sold for $275,000. The new owners announced their intentions to build a housing project on the property. On October 5th, wreckers dismantling the park touched off a four-alarm fire. It burned for 10 hours. By the time it ended, only the park's administration building, ballroom, and pool remained. Simultaneously, as Americans began to flood the suburbs, New York City's Parks Commissioner Robert Moses saw an opening. He hated Coney Island with its cheap, amoral working-class entertainment. Moses was hard at work getting the amusement land rezoned. He planned to wipe out any traces of Coney's past. During the day, the area was still a hotbed for beachgoers, sunbathers, and Nathan's hot dog eaters. But after dark, Coney, now filled with vacant land, transformed into a seedy underworld. Crime Club. I'm the librarian. Coney Island Nocturne. Yes, we have a story for you. Come right over. chair by the window. Comfortable? The manuscript is on this shelf. Here it is, Coney Island Nocturne, the very absorbing story of fingers that were nailed by death. Let's look at it under the reading lamp. When Mike Donahue brought Helen O'Malley to Coney Island for an evening of fun, he had only the best intentions. Naturally, he was an officer of the law, a detective. And she was his fiancée. But three hours later, they stood in the middle of a crowded, noisy carnival street. 
they were faced with a crisis of catastrophic proportions. Mike, I'm afraid I'll never understand you. How many times have I told you never to keep your wallet in your hip pocket? Yeah. If you were just another palooka who didn't know any better, then, well, all right. But you're a member of the pickpocket squad. You're supposed to know. Yeah. Haven't you got anything to say? How much money have you got on you? Enough to get us home. Helen, you're not going to tell the boys at the station house. No, dear. I still expect to marry you someday. I want congratulations, not sympathy. Yeah, well... Hey, Mike. Uh, hmm? Who was that? Look over there, honey, and you'll see a character. Hiya, Mike. I never thought I'd be glad to see you. Benny Gould. You recognize me, don't you? Look me over, pal. I've done a 60-day stretch in a workhouse, and I ain't a bit tired. <laughs> what are you doing down here, Benny? You thought your territory was Times Square. I got a job. I'm going straight, Mike. You don't say. Yep. Got fed up looking through bars. So now I'm a barker for a show up the street. Hey, who's the uh, tomato? Helen O'Malley, chipmunk. Do you consider me fruit or vegetable? Huh? Oh, <laughs> It's a riot, Mike. Is it uh, permanent? Put your hands behind your head, Benny. What? I'm going to frisk you. Now, do you want to put him up, or do I have to coach you? I put him up. You can cut nothing on me. I'm on a level now, Mike. You're an old-time pickpocket, Benny. You know where you cops make a label stick. Once a crook, always a crook. Mike, he wouldn't have your wallet. Maybe not, Helen. But this dip can pick the whiskers off a sleeping cat and get away with it. Okay, Benny. Thanks. Come on, Helen. Hey, wait a minute. Was she kidding about your wallet? You're blocking traffic. Come on, you don't have to be ashamed to tell me about it. I used to be in the business. Uh, you wouldn't be giving it to us now, would you? Look, I know every dip on the island. Give me a chance, maybe I'll get your wallet back for you. Why, chipmunk? Because I'm a good citizen, that's why. All right, Benny, let's go. Hey, what is this, a pinch? You were going to take me to the wallet, weren't you? I've got to find it first, Mike. Suppose we do that together, huh? Uh-uh. I ain't putting my finger on nobody. If you want your property, then you'll wait till I nab the guy that's got it, and then I'll bring it to you. Don't argue, Mike. Be practical. That's what I say, sister. I'm doing him a favor. But how is it done, Chipmunk? Coney Island's a big place. Well, I contact a few of the dips, and they spread the word around, that's all. Okay, Benny. It's going to take time, Mike. Uh, meet me at the beach at the end of the boardwalk in a couple hours, 11 o'clock. And don't follow me. We won't. Mike wants his wallet, and I want Mike to be happy. We'll meet you on the beach at 11 o'clock. Crime Club debuted over the Mutual Broadcasting System at 8 p.m. on December 2nd, 1946. Each episode adapted one of the stories of the Crime Club magazine. Boardwalk and... Oh, I think we ought to adopt Benny, don't you? It was his suggestion. Well, we're not exactly New York stage and radio actor Barry Thompson played the librarian. This episode, Coney Island Nocturne, was broadcast from WOR in New York and heard Thursday, July 10th, 1947, at 10 p.m. Benny, don't you ever blow your horn when you come to a crossing? Blow my... Oh, I get it. Well, I figured it didn't mean nothing. See, there ain't no moon out. Have you got the wallet? Not yet, pal. You said 11 o'clock, and it's almost half past. Okay, but Coney Island's got a lot of depths, and it's spread out all over. you got to be patient, Mike. How much longer? Listen, i got a couple of dozen guys working right now. Stick around for a little while. You ain't got nothing to lose with that tomato. I'll see you later. Where are you going? My boss gets worried when he don't know what I'm doing. So long. Now, Mike, where were we? What do you mean, Helen? When we were so rudely interrupted with a report about nothing. Oh, let's go home, huh? But, Mike... Well, it's a long trip, honey, and I've got to be at the station house at 8 o'clock in the morning. But your wallet... Then he can send it to me. He knows where. 
What was that? Thunder, baby. We'll have to run. I hope it pours. Help me All up. All right, come on. I hope it pours for 40 days and 40 nights. Well, let's go. Wait a minute. You can't leave that girl sleeping there on the beach. No. No, I'm going to wake her up. Oh, of course. Oh, don't be unreasonable, Helen. There's going to be a storm. How would you like to get drenched? Why oh, wait for a storm? You can dampen my spirits. Uh-oh. What's the matter? It's raining. Already? I just felt a drop on my nose. Let's get out of here, Mike. Wait a minute, dear. Oh, excuse me, lady. I think you'd better... Uh, miss. Miss. Why don't you just yell in her ear? I don't think it would do any good, Helen. Well, truck it and find out. I just felt another drop. You just can't wake up the dead by making a lot of noise. Huh? Mike, she isn't... She is, Helen. From head to foot. <laughs> The poor kid. And to think we were sitting only 30 feet away on the same beach. Well, she was dead before we got here, Helen. I'll never forgive myself, Mike, the way I talked about her. But if it hadn't been for that storm that never broke, I... Mike, I feel terrible. Well, here's something to keep you busy. Her handbag? Yeah, look through it. She might have some identification. All right. I should get to a call box, you know. The local police might have hear about this. I'm not staying here alone. I don't know what there is about the dead that scares Are people, Are you sure she was murdered, Mike? Her skull was crushed with a sandbag. I can't believe a little thing like that could kill anybody. Well, this little thing weighs about ten pounds, honey, and it's packed solid. Well, Mike. What's the matter? Look, your wallet. Well, I'll be... It was in her handbag. Give it to me. Of all things, that girl, a pickpocket. 20, 25, 30, It sort of shatters your faith in people, doesn't it? 40, so young and so pretty. 40, it's all here, What's Helen? all here? My money. Oh, that's good. Well, aren't you glad? I'm too busy wondering about human nature. Postpone it until we get a line on the girl. Come on, keep looking in her handbag. Mike, darling, you may be a detective, but... Then I'll look. That's your job. Oh, dear, a pickpocket. Mike, what kind of people murder pickpockets? All kinds. Well, I mean, pickpockets are the lowest kind of crooks, the bottom of the underworld. They don't work in mobs, do they? Sometimes. Hmm. Maggie Blake. What's that? A name on this identification card. A pickpocket with a... It doesn't make sense, Mike. It never does, honey, until you know what it's all about. Do you? No, but I'm going to find out. That's nice. Where do we start? First, we have to a call box. Get the homicide squad working. As long as we do it together, dear. And after that, we're going to Josie Johnson's Palace of Joy. We're going where? Read it. It's on this business card I found in Maggie Blake's handbag. Oh. Well, as long as they advertise, it should be all right, shouldn't it? Helen, what's wrong with you? You'll never know, Mike, what I thought you were talking about. After Crime Club went off the air at 10.30, WOR alternated news and late-night music until Eddie Newman went on the air at 2 a.m. Oh, it's you. I'm glad to see you again. Where have you been keeping yourself? I went out for a walk, Josie. You're a liar. Hey, now look... I said you're a liar. What are you going to do about it? We're, uh... We're doing pretty good business, Josie. So what? Suckers like the show we give them. I give them. You're only window dressing like a husband should be. But you're not even good window dressing. Uh, put that bottle back. I haven't had a drink all night, Josie. Put it back and lock that drawer. Oh, just one. There's the key on top of the desk. Use it. Between you and me, I don't care if you drink yourself into pink elephants. But you talk when you're drunk. And that's bad for me. Oh, I don't know why I've got to take it from you. Stop any time you want. There's a bed at the bottom of the ocean. 
Now, give me that key. I started this business. It was my idea to set up the show. That was so long ago, you've died a hundred times since. Where have you been for the last three hours? I told you. Just walking around, huh? Inhaling the fresh Coney Island air. I got tired sitting around the office watching you run you things. You said you were going out front for a couple of minutes to look around. So I went for a walk. What's the difference? Came back and you weren't here, so I went out again. How's uh, Maggie Blake? What? Don't look so dumb. You were out with her, weren't you? No. Pete, this is Josie you're talking to, your wife. I've known you for a long time. I haven't seen the girl, I tell you. You, you want me to lay you off, and I, I... Was she here? Are you kidding? Well, didn't she even bring in the take? Are you calling me a cheat? No, no, wait, wait, Josie, wait a minute. You, you know I don't think you're a doubler, but Maggie always comes in a few times like the others, and she's pretty regular. She was too busy tonight. Not with me. Shut up, Pete. You're through making a monkey out of me. Josie, you're all wrong. Everybody I... on the island's talking about you and Maggie. I'm telling you for the last time, I don't like it. I don't like people feeling sorry for me. Well, why don't you give her the air? Because she knows too much. Uh, Palace of Joy. Josie Johnson talking. Uh, this is Bunny. I got a message for Pete. What is it? Tell him I can't find Maggie Blake. That's all. That's enough, Benny. Nice going, Pete. When did you decide to use Benny as a stooge? What do you mean, Joe? What do you take me for, a two-year-old? You think I start believing because Benny calls up and says you've had him looking for Maggie? Is that what he just told you? You cheap chisel sneak! (laughs) Now get out of here. Go out front and help take tickets. I'm sorry you did that, Joe. Go on, go on. I get sick looking at you. You've been having things your own way too long, baby. Look out you don't drop dead one of these days. You're very funny, Pete. Yeah, yeah. I'm a real comedian, but don't laugh too hard. You're liable to fall out of this world. Crime Club failed to generate any sponsorship support for the Mutual Broadcasting System and was canceled after its October 16, 1947 episode. Barry Thompson would pass away unexpectedly of a heart attack on August 19, 1960. He was 52. This is Ali Silva of Fireside Mystery Theater, coming to you at a time of great peril. Some fiend has tied me to a rope dangling just a few feet over a giant boiling cauldron of... What is that? Smells like gazpacho? But gazpacho is supposed to be served cold. Oh, whatever. Why would I put myself in such a situation? Because we at Fireside Mystery Theater will do whatever it takes to create exciting audio drama. Enjoy our acclaimed anthology series of original eerie radio plays, performed before a live audience by a full cast of magnificent actors and a crew of amazing musicians and technicians. Just go to FiresideMysteryTheater.com for show listings, info about us, and links to our podcast. Take a listen for yourself today and find out why our podcast is among one of the top audio drama series out there. Oh, brother. 
That villain is cutting my rope. Well, that must mean my time is up. So tune in and subscribe to the Fireside Mystery Theater podcast. Oh, and be sure to mind the shadow. Next door. No. Ah, oh, Mrs. Nussbaum. You are expecting maybe the pink spot. <laughs> Tell me, Mrs. Ann, how do you feel about Coney Island? For 20 years, every Sunday, I'm going to Coney Island. To see the sights? What sights? Pierre and I are too short. In the crowds, we are seeing nothing. You mean you're so sure? On the subway, all we are looking on is backbones and suspenders. <laughs> what happens when you get to Coney Island? Again, we are seeing nothing. In the crowd, we are getting jammed with pushed around. I see. On a merry-go-round, we are pushed, we are riding. Uh-huh. To a hamburger stand, we are pushed, we are eating. Uh-huh. But without onions. Oh, I see. <laughs> And the shoots, the shoots, we are pushed, the shoots, we are shooting. Uh-huh. <laughs> it is getting back. We are pushed on a train. We are coming home. And you go through this same routine every Sunday all summer? For 20 years, it is pushing, riding, eating without onions, and shoot shooting. Well, don't you... Don't you swim? Don't you ever go into the water? What water? <laughs> Why, Coney Island is a beach. And there is water there. Yes. Now he is telling me. <laughs> One week before the episode of Crime Club that we just heard, the New York Daily Mirror newspaper in cooperation with the U.S. Air Force, promoted an air show and fireworks display at Coney Island. It was estimated that 2.5 million people showed up, an all-time record. It was a crowd bigger than the population of every other major American city besides Chicago. On sweltering summer days, Coney was still the best place to beat the heat. Irma, look at that New York skyline. Isn't it amazing to think that the Indians sold all of Manhattan for only $24? Isn't that silly? They could have gotten $1,000 for the Empire State Building alone. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's what you can expect when you listen to my friend Irma. On Friday, April 11th, 1947, CBS debuted a new situation comedy called My Friend Irma. Marie Wilson starred as Irma Peterson, a kind-hearted, simple-minded, buxom blonde stenographer, while a tremendously versatile actress, Kathy Lewis, portrayed her completely opposite roommate, Jane Stacy. By 1947, Kathy was nicknamed Mrs. Radio, as writer E. Jack Newman remembered. Kathy was a consummate actress, of course, beautiful woman. As I recall her, she was very gracious, kind and very, very competent in her profession. I remember she made a, uh, aside from her enormous success as a radio actress, she was also on a long-run television show, uh, My Friend Irma. Yeah, radio and TV. I always liked Kathy and always got along with her very well. I can't say that has happened with every actress I've worked with since. (laughs) 
that make people say that New York is a great place to visit, but not to live in. Why? Because the temperature is hugging the century mark and the humidity is picketing your pores. <laughs> Irma and I are stretched out, gasping for breath on our patio. <laughs> you see, we like to think of our fire escape as a patio. <laughs> Jane! Jane! Oh, don't talk, sweetie. It's too hot. Jane, what's the temperature of the human body? 98 is normal. What's the temperature on the fire escape? Well, let me see. My goodness, it's 98. Now, what are we complaining about? Everything is normal. <laughs> well, ordinarily, I'd try to straighten Irma out, but it's too hot to argue. In fact, to forget the heat, Irma and I are playing a game. We're looking on the clotheslines around us and trying to guess what kind of people each line represents. For instance, um, over there on Mrs. Burton's line, there are two silk-striped men's shirts and five pair of boys' overalls. Story's quite plain. Mr. Burton is a big man about town, and Junior has to support the family. <laughs> Jane, I've got one figured out. Yeah? Yes, Mrs. Adams has two and a half children. <laughs> she has. Uh, how did you arrive at that? Well, it's very simple, Jane. There's five stockings on the line. <laughs> A gold star for you, Irma Peterson. I suppose because there are two sunbonnets hanging on Mrs. Horowitz's line, she has two heads. Two heads. <laughs> well, she does keep to herself. Gosh, Jane, isn't it warm? Yeah, it's just about the hottest day I can remember. Let's go back into the house. Maybe it's cooled off. All right, Jane. Oh, no. It's just as hot in here. Well, I think I can bring the temperature down, Jane. Just give me time. Irma, what are you going to do with all those paper bags? I'm going to fill them all up with warm air and put them in the icebox and let them cool off. <laughs> Please, honey, please. Is that any good, Jane? Irma, the next time we go out in the sun, promise me you'll wear a hat. <laughs> oh, gosh, I wish there was some way we could cool off. And Irma, don't suggest that we put cold slaw on our heads. <laughs> oh, that's ridiculous. What will we have for supper? <laughs> Look, Jane, if we really want to cool off, why don't we go to Coney Island and sit on the beach? Sit? Irma, if we were ballet dancers, we couldn't find enough beach in that crowd to stand on one toe. Oh, but, Jane, there's going to be a contest and a parade, and the couple with the best personality gets a prize. Yeah, but, honey, it's such a trek to Coney Island. Well, with Alan Richard, it'd be so much fun. <laughs> Richard at Coney Island. Honey, I don't want to make Richard seem snobbish, but the whole picture is out of focus. That'd be like asking Mrs. Vanderbilt to write a column for the Hobo News. Oh, but Jane, we have such fun at Coney Island. Al wins so many prizes, like when they try to guess his weight. Yeah, I know, Irma. Someday they're going to find that brick in his back pocket and they'll let him have it. <laughs> but not for a prize. Hello. Oh, hello, Richard. Hmm? Yes, of course I'm warm. How is it the show was created during the time after World War II, when CBS head William Paley was championing new experimental programming. Cy Howard recast Kathy Lewis after hearing her read, and Marie Wilson after seeing her in Ken Murray's Blackouts. Gloria Gordon played Mrs. O'Reilly, 
Hans Conried was Professor Kropotkin. Arthur, I haven't heard that. That died the year radio died. I'd played it for seven years. That was the end of radio, you see. Post-war was comedy I did mostly, and it was a part called Professor Kropotkin. He began the first show I was not in. I was in the second show on for the rest of the seven-year run. The first show, he was a musician living in, this ga- in the garret of a boarding house who made answer only with his violin. But there wasn't much possibility to continue <laughs> that character, so they brought me in. And as I recall, I played it first with a Russian accent, but then the political situation. So we altered it and made it what we, a Jewish dialect. And he called himself a gypsy. And <laughs> that's the way the character developed within just two or three programs, and it held that way. And I did the same thing for seven years. There wasn't much variety. If you hear one, you'll hear them all. Probably looking for a job. John Brown played Irma's boyfriend, Al. Well, what are you doing? And Alan Reed played Mr. Clyde, oh. Irma's boss. Oh, that's right. You, you were on uh, My Friend Irma for a while, weren't you? For a yes. long while, Yeah, I, I played her boss, Mr. Clyde. Uh-huh. And it was a fine experience. That and Luigi were on mm-hmm. at the same time. The following year... Cy Howard would cast Reed in Life with Luigi. You know, they call New York City the melting pot. I don't know that it's true all year round, but in the summer, if you want to melt, believe me, there's no place like New York. Of course, if you want relief, there's always Coney Island. And it is relief, because after a day at Coney Island, you can't wait till you get back to New York. Oh, frankly, I don't know why we came here. Coney Island has turned out to be a nothing. A crowded nothing. Irma, because Al didn't come along, is utterly miserable. She hasn't stopped eating since we got here. She always eats like that when Alice stood her up. She says it helps fill the emptiness inside her. As for me, without Richard, I'm completely bored. There's only one person seems to be enjoying himself, and that's Professor Kropotkin. You know why? He's burying Mrs. O'Reilly in the sand. (laughs) He keeps saying, Can you still breathe? (laughs) And when Mrs. O'Reilly says, Yes, Professor. He says, Got to get more sand. (laughs) Irma is still moping. Jane... What is it, sweetie? You know, sometimes I wish there was no such thing as men. Wish there was something else. <laughs> what would you like them to be? Oh, anything. Canary birds, dogs. No, that wouldn't be any good. We'd be spending all our time in pet shops. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it'd be such trouble to find a husband who was housebroken. <laughs> Honey, forget about Al disappointing you. We're on the beach. We came here to enjoy ourselves. Let's be gay. Laugh. Oh. <laughs> Irma, that's hardly a laugh. Well, I can't help it, Jane. My heart's not in it. Why not, honey? A man just sat on our lunch. <laughs> oh, that's fine. That's fine. That's all we needed. Girls, are you very busy? No, Professor. What do you want? Could you please help me find Mrs. O'Reilly? <laughs> oh, Professor, don't you remember where you buried her? Well, I put a paper plate over the spot, but the wind blew it away. Oh, here comes Miss O'Reilly. Hello, girls. Oh, there you are, Professor. Mrs. O'Reilly, where have you been? Oh, I was up on the boardwalk. Professor, I've entered our names in the personality contest. You and me? 
Your name and my name? Yes. Do you think we'll have a chance to win? No, but we could set a good example of what would happen if Cupid ever starts using poison darts. <laughs> oh, hush your spoofing. Come on, Professor, walk me to the bathhouse. I want to change into me other bathing suit. You have another suit with you, Mrs. O'Reilly? Oh, yes. I understand that a girl's figure plays a very important part in these contests. So I think I'd better wear the bathing suit that leaves my knees exposed. <laughs> By the time this episode, Irma and Jane visit Coney Island, air on Monday, June 7th, 1948 at 8.30 p.m., my friend Irma was being sponsored by the Lever Brothers. That season, Irma was the second highest rated show on Monday evenings behind the Lux Radio Theater. Yeah. Where are you going, sweetie? Oh, I think I'll take a swim. They say an ocean voyage makes you forget. <laughs> well, Irma, don't go out too far. Remember, you've just eaten. You might get a cramp. All right, Jane, I'll be careful. What? Don't take a swim with me. No, thanks, honey. This bathing suit involves in water. <laughs> No, I'll just sit here and amuse myself. Have fun. I will. Goodbye. Pardon me. Please. Yes? I just realized I've been sitting on your lunch. Oh, well, that's all right. You don't have to look so terrified. But I am. A lot of that stuff isn't on my diet. <laughs> what? Goodbye now. Well, I will be... Hiya, Jane. Well, Al. Well, Al, what are you doing here? I thought you were tied up on business. Was, but the deal fell through. As could be expected. Yeah, but this one seemed like such a natural. It's a device for guys who don't want to break their promise to their wives when they've told them they're going on the wagon. What is it? It's a bar on a wagon. <laughs> what? The guy didn't go for it, so let's forget it. Jane, uh, where's Chicken? Oh, she's in the water, Al. Last time I saw her, she was right up... Al, look at that crowd. The lifeguard's bringing someone in. So what? Good-looking lifeguard, some dame probably hollered for help. Al, it's Irma. Irma? Oh, wait a minute. She can swim. Yeah, but Al, accidents can happen to the best swimmers. Come on, let's help her. She looks like she don't need no help. Look at the way she's got her arms around his shoulders. Oh, Al, don't be narrow. So he's carrying her. What do you want her to do when she's drowning? Carry him? <laughs> well, I don't like it, Jane, and I'm going to let her know it. Oh, hello, Jane. Oh, Al, gee, I'm so glad to see you. Did you see? I almost drowned. Yeah. Fun, wasn't it? <laughs> What do you mean, Al? Look, chicken, I saw the way you were. My friend Irma's success helped the show become a predecessor for two other female-driven comedies, which would debut the following month. My Favorite Husband, starring Lucille Ball, and Our Miss Brooks, starring Eve Arden. In 1949, an Irma film helped launch the mainstream careers of Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. Marie Wilson, Gloria Gordon, and Kathy Lewis took their roles to CBS television in 1952. The series ran for two seasons. But Kathy Lewis resigned midway through 1953, and Irma got a new roommate, Kay Foster, played by Mary Ship. I don't want him to cool off. Sun's going down. I'm getting chilly. <laughs> Please. Oh, honey, all right. If you're going to get hysterical, I suppose I'll have to go after him. Al? 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 Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. I want to talk to Please, you. Please, Jane, I've made up my mind. Look, Al, Irma wants you to come back. Frankly, if I were Irma, I'd not only give you railroad fare, I'd carry your bags to the station. But Irma loves you, and I'm not going to see you hurt her because I love Irma. Well, I don't want to hurt Chicken. Oh, you don't want to hurt her. <laughs> Do you realize what that girl goes through every time you quarrel with her? Do you realize what I go through? Well, let me tell you. Remember last October when you made a date with another girl? Yeah. Well, she tried to kill herself by gas. 
She turned on the stove and she sat in front of it for six hours before she remembered it was electric. <laughs> and then so it wouldn't be a total loss, she baked a cake. <laughs> Almost killed all of us. <laughs> Al, I have only one life to give to my country, but to me, you're not Uncle Sam. You mean I really affect chicken that much? Yes, you do. And if you're half a man, you'll enter the personality contest with her so she can have a little fun. Come on. What do you say, Al? Sure, Jane. Don't want to worry my future wife and have her hair turn prematurely gray. She'll have a tough enough time getting a job as it is. <laughs> you want a hot dog, Jane? They look pretty good. No, thanks, Yeah, Al. well, tell Chicken I'll meet her here on the boardwalk for the contest. Got to make a call. Who are you calling, Al? Who else but... Hello, Joe. Al, got a problem. That's enough for me. Goodbye, Al. Say, Joe, I'm at Coney Island, going to enter a personality contest with Irma. What do you suggest? Uh-huh. 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 Mm-hmm. Forget the personality contest and go over to the shooting gallery if I want to clean up? But, Joe, there's no money in knocking over clay pigeons. Oh, you don't mean clay pigeons. The manager is loaded. <laughs> no, Joe, may be mistaken, but think managers are out of season. We'll enter the contest despite your advice. Goodbye, noble friend. Well, we're all on the boardwalk, and the personality contest has just begun. There go Al and Irma. She's arm in arm with Al, and they're doing a funny little dance step. I won't say it's not graceful. I'll only say that one look at it, and Arthur Murray had burned down his studios. <laughs> Al is smiling broadly and strutting with his chest out. He couldn't be any happier if he had a written guarantee that he wouldn't get a job for the next 20 years. <laughs> you know, I think she's going to win. I'm sure she is. Richard! Oh, Jane, I've been looking all over for you. I tried to get her in time for the contest, but I guess I'm too late. Richard, would, would you have entered this contest? With you? Anytime. Oh, Richard, imagine the two of us standing here in the sun with the temperature 140. Well, it's not 140. Oh, it is when you talk that way. Look, Richard. Look, Alan Irma won the Irma test. Look. So they have. Yeah. Jane. Jane, look at this wonderful cup I won. Oh, congratulations, honey. Thanks, but personally, I don't think it's fair. Why not? Well, Al won the contest with me, and if I won a cup, the least they could have done was give him the saucer. <laughs> home and found Irma putting a bathing cap on a cake of swan soap before she put it in the bathtub. So I said, Irma, what's the bathing cap for? And Irma said, I don't want my swan to get water in his ears. <laughs> well, Jane, you know very well that... My Irma friend Irma went off the air after the August 23rd, 1954 episode. Sure, when it comes to washing dishes, swans in a class by itself. Why, even the way a cake of swan feels tells you it's a perfect dishwashing This is the world-famous skyline of New York City. Well, a part of it. A part that nobody ever sees. Coney Island is actually in the city of New York. But nobody who's been to Coney Island has ever seen 
nobody at Coney Island. Because this clean, so clean, empty beach, with the trash baskets lined up at attention in perfect rows, looks like this only once a day, when the big city is still in bed. The beach and this painted village lying quiet in the early morning sun is Coney Island. New York swelters in the summer, and as the sun rises higher in the hot sky, millions of people leave the baking streets and go down to the seaside, down to Coney Island, USA. I always found acting boring, because there's not enough to do. You do it, and then you're finished, and now what are you going to do, you know? They would go back to the office to do rewrites and changes and all that kind of stuff. So I would go into the booth and listen when I wasn't on in the scene, and then I'd go back to the office and they'd let me sit there with them when they were doing rewrites and cuts. So I got interested in all of it, and when I started working on suspense, Spear asked me, because I was writing suspense in addition to acting on it, I wrote some of them, and I edited a great many of them. And Steer had to go away and he asked me if I wanted to direct it. And I said, yeah, sure. So I directed one. And then the CBS people wanted to do Broadway's My Beat, which had been on in the East. They wanted to move it out here and they needed a producer-director. Mort Fine, David Friedkin were going to write it. And we cooked up the idea of scoring it with a jazz orchestra and got Sandy Courage for that. I all of a sudden was directing a show every week. Broadway's My Beat, from Times Square to Columbus Circle, the gaudiest, the most violent, the lonesomest mile in the world. Broadway's My Beat, the exciting drama of people who walk the great white way, with Larry Thor as Detective Danny Clover. Afternoon sun strikes glints on Broadway's pavements, and the perfumes of summer drift in from meadows never known, from tropic seas that were never sailed, from green hills veiled in mist and imagined in childhood, drift and die against neon bled of its color. But the illusion still rides the silken vessel of a girl's summer frock, and the season dances in her slow, languid walk, and her passing is reflected in chrome and steel. There's crowd between you and her, and there's loss. So walk away from it, kid, and order the beer and skim off the longing. Summer, too, will finally pass from Broadway. And for the policeman, there's this, the corridor to be walked, the corridor at whose end lie the anonymous dead, the unclaimed dead. Walk it and push open a swinging door that opens onto the city's morgue. Stand for a moment against the stillness and move into it. Over here, Danny. This one. What about him? Tell me in, Muggerman. It's a summer's day, Danny, and you and Don't I have to... do cry about it, kid. Just tell me, huh? Well, this is the one they brought in yesterday, Danny. One those boys and girls found buried in the sand on Coney Island. When they dug him out, they also found a knife wound in his chest. Made them sad. They turned off the portable radio, stopped dancing. Can you identify him yet? Yeah, that's why I called you. All right, you called me. The man was in his beach trunks, no wallet on him, no bundle of clothes, not even a locker tag. You want me to compliment you on how hard you work for his identity? Yeah, it would be nice. 
All he had was some numbers tattooed on his arm. Uh, the kind they were, their sequence, I figured they were social security types. So I checked the agency in Baltimore. They had him in their files. He used to work Carney's. Just came in on the teletype. Who is he? A man by the name of Joey Croft now runs a palace of fun down in Coney. Him and a partner. I checked on the partner. They tell me a dish, Danny, a dish by the name of Letty Scott. You going to talk to her? Coney on a nice day. Sure you will. And leave the place of the tagged and cataloged dead. The clean and quiet room where death is pigeonholed. Accounts current for homicide. Leave there and out into beginning twilight. And the drive now to Coney. And Coney Island on a mild summer's evening is carnival. Is pink cotton candy and things that spin and things that whirl. And Coney is ten shots for a quarter. And guess your weight. And down rushing rides and carousel. Giddiness, laughter, hot dogs, arcades. And little Egypt's oldest granddaughter. Ask a question of a man in a harlequin suit who needed a shave. Be directed to some steps and a frosted glass door to an office. Office. Come in. Hi. Hello. Well, thanks. For what? For the stairs. What else do you have on your mind? I'm uh, from the police. My name's Danny Clover. I asked you something. Yeah, you did. It's about Joey Croft. All right, it's about Joey Cross. Sit down, wait for him. Go ahead, do that. I'm his partner. He seems surprised to see you sitting in his chair when he comes in. Say, Letty said you would have do that. Joey's dead. He was found yesterday on the beach, Miss Scott, dead, stabbed to death. He's in the morgue. Honey, alone, will you? All right. Honey, alone. Stabbed? That's right. Murdered. What, a fight, an argument with somebody? Joey's temper... How? Who did it? I don't know. What about you? Are you kidding? Did you kill him? I'm the girl who used to ride elephants. That makes me kind to all animals and nearly all people. And I was real kind to Joey. I don't go around killing him. Where were you yesterday? Here, all day. I was here all day, mister. Listen, you, I can prove it. I did What am I yelling for? Ask around. I was here all day. Let's assume that, Miss Scott. Let's assume you were here. You didn't kill Joey. Partner. You uh, must have known him pretty well. You just said it. I was his partner. What about it, then? Who didn't like him? Listen, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to get somebody in trouble because I knew Joey pretty well, and I'm going to miss Joey. Find yourself a boy named Fred Moore, and I'll tell you where to find him. Who's Fred Moore? He once worked here in a clown suit on his way to being a geek. Stole some dough. Joey screamed. They took off Fred's clown suit and dressed him like they do in Danamora. Fred got three years. Now he's out. You said you knew where to find him. Where? Seagirt. I took a walk down there a week or so ago. Saw Fred sitting on a porch, rocking in a chair. The hotel there. The ocean rest. He waved to me. I waved to him. He got up from his rocker. I walked away fast. Ask him what you asked me. Ask him did he kill Joey Croft. And tell her you'll do that when you find him. And tell her to stay close to her palace of fun. All hers now. No partners. Because you'll want her to be there if there's need to come back. And leave her. Leave the taunting that lies close on her lips and changes color as neon spins. And on the ride to Seagirt, Carnival ebbs. 
its sounds muted as lights flung against the darkening, mist-laden skies and holes. And at the edge of laughter, the hotel, Ocean Rest, its paint scarred, blistered, feeling. On its screen porch, a row of frayed and empty rockers swaying to the tides of night wind. Broadway is my beat first took to the air from New York on February 27, 1949, starring Anthony Ross and directed by John Dietz. CBS executives thought the show sounded flat. They moved production to Hollywood beginning July 7th and turned its direction over to Elliot Lewis. Radio demands that you pay attention. You must listen. It's very rewarding because once you become involved. So issue an all points bulletin on Fred Moore. Go home. Sleep out night. And in the morning, come back to Ocean Rest. Want me to stay out here, Danny? Yeah, wait. Don't go inside, you. What? Out here is better. You're the police fellow asking around the cleaning woman last night. That's right. You, uh, Mr. Zabrowski? I didn't catch no fish in case you would care to ask. You don't care, huh? I'm looking for Fred Moore. Freddy the geek? Freddy the guzzler? Freddy the ex-con? <laughs> How a man can do such things to his body. Uh, go fight the geek. Your cleaning woman said he checked out. When? Maybe two nights ago. Maybe same two nights ago on day Joey Croft was killed. I read this morning's paper. I say to me, was this same two nights ago Joey Croft was knifed? And Freddy checked out the next night the police fellow? <laughs> Freddy killed a man. You know where he went? I was a strong man once, police fellow. Look at me, you could believe it? I asked you if you knew where Fred was. Strong Moore. man broke chains across my chest at carnivals. So it does not matter to me where killers run to hide. I do not care. I go fishing. What makes you so sure he's the killer? He told me. He said to me, Zabrowski, this Joey Croft wronged me. Put me in prison. Wrong me. I fix him. This he said to me on this porch. I do not argue. I do not discuss with private matters of geeks. I give money to geeks for booze. <laughs> I am their friend. When did he say all this to you? First day he come here to Ocean Rest. Say, put me on cuff. Soon I have much money. I laugh how geek can get such money. He told me. He say he fixed Joey Croft. I called Joey. Tell him to walk soft because Danny, geek is... What do you want, Muggerman? Just come over the radio. Somebody spotted Fred Moore. Citizen spider in West 16th, Danny, in Manhattan. Okay, let's go. Larry Thor starred as Danny Clover, with Charles Calvert as Tartaglia, and Jack Crucian as Mugovan. This episode, the Joey Croft murder case, was broadcast on Saturday, June 23rd, 1952, at 9.30 p.m. Hey, you the cop, huh? Who are you? I discovered him, Mac. I'm the kid that found Fred Moore. Where is he? Up there, second floor. He's in the front. Come on, Muggleman. I, I was walking down the street out front, made a purchase at the drugstore, including a newspaper, so right next to the box scores is this picture in the paper. This man wanted for questioning in connection with murder. Then walking back down the block, there he is, going into here. And the shades went down from that room there. Uh, you've been a big help, mister. Now, uh, you just walk down the other end of the hall and wait there. Hey, now, look, I'm the kid that discovered him. Walk. I sure, sure. Fred, open up. It's the police. Lights come in front of the door. Fred and on. Drunk. <laughs> yeah, smell this, Danny. 
Pretty lousy bourbon. What's the matter? He's Fred Moore, isn't he? He's the man we... Yeah, he's Fred Moore. Not drunk, huh? No. He's dead. The show's chief script-writing duo was Morton Fine and David Friedkin. They wrote poetic prose fit into the gritty world of the sardonic, case-hardened detective. Mr. Fine was interviewed by Dan Haefeli of Spurvac on August 9, 1988. Broadway is my beat is the first series you wrote regularly. Was it your idea or your and David's idea? No, as a matter of fact, it had been done before David and I got hold of it. It was done out in New York. And the mavens in New York felt that whoever was writing it in New York was not capturing the flavor of New York, so they brought it to Hollywood, where two <laughs> other writers caught the flavor, allegedly, of New York. So, by sitting down in Hollywood and writing. Larry Thor, marvelous man. We were good buddies. And a music anecdote about Larry, which is revealing as the kind of pixie character he was in real life. He wanted to know what time it was. So he called the operator and asked her what time it was. And she wouldn't tell him. He got back on the phone, asked for long distance. He went to talk person to person with his brother Magnus Thor in Reykjavik, Iceland. And he asked her what time it was there. He wanted to know whether he was calling at a proper hour. She told him. He then subtracted nine hours from that and found out what time it was in Hollywood. <laughs> The summer day on Broadway is a slow carousel, and the mob walks in dream time, easy, and stops there to watch the juggler and the pancake spinning in the window, and there, the spectacular and death-defying act of the jaywalker, and walks again, stops again to drink at the enameled and lighted fountain of eternal orange juice. It's the languid time on Broadway, the easy smile time, and it's clown and a girl blowing kisses. The end of the fabulous ride that costs only a dime. Formula was, don't let the cop ask the proper question in the second scene of the first act or you would have no story. Hold that question off until your penultimate scene, the scene before the denouement, and that's when you have your story. To separate that, the time when it should have been asked, and it could have been asked very easily. To when it's actually asked, 20 minutes right later. Right here where the blood is. You're not going to fight me on that, are you? You heard me. Just maybe, Mike. Oh, go call the boy who spotted Fred. Yeah. Hey, you. Me? Yeah, come in. In here. Here he is, Danny. What's your name? I wasn't wrong, huh? That's Fred Moore, all right? Lieutenant asked you something. What's your name? Ray. I'm Ray Kendall. Hey, what's the matter with him? What's all... Let me out of Just here. Just take it easy, Mr. Kendall. He hurt bad? He dead? Anybody else walk in or out of this apartment house while you were standing outside? Sure, sure, sure. I guess so. You guess so or you know? I'm no cop. I said sure, I guess so, because I guess so. Can you describe anybody who went in or out? I don't know who went in that house. I see a wanted guy. I'm supposed to be a deputy or something. I'm supposed to walk up to him and say, Hey, Buster, no more of that. You're pinched. Oh, I'm a guy. That's all. I don't do things like that. Me? I'm scared to death half the time, and you expect me to get... Yes? This is the second time I called. Nobody answered the first time. Who is this? I'm Nora Forrest. You're in my apartment. 
Where will I find you, Miss Forrest? Not far. I'll be in East River Park, one of the park benches on 23rd. Stay where you are. I'll be right there. Broadway's My Beat featured Hollywood radio talent like Barney Phillips, Virginia Gregg, Tony Barrett, Herb Butterfield, Betty Lou Gerson, Hi Averback, Kathy Lewis, Harry Bartell, Lawrence Dobkin, Mary Jane Croft, and Herb Vigrin, who in this episode portrayed the hotel manager. I used to do a show called Head of Hopper's Bread House, and there was a guy on the show by the name of Gerald Moore, and he kind of took a liking to me. We got very friendly, and Jerry Moore thought I should be doing a lot more than I was, so he set up an appointment with Ken Hansen, who was at that time Glenn Hall Taylor's assistant. Anyhow, so Jerry Moore set up this appointment for me with Ken Hansen, and uh, I went up to the sixth floor of the Equitable Building where Young and Rupkam had their offices. I waited, and I waited, and it got to be 10.30, and I waited, and it got to be 11, and it got to be 11.15, and it got to be 11.30, and it got to be a quarter to 12, and I said, I don't care how poor I am and how broke I am, I, I got a little bit of dignity left. You waited another hour now. So, <laughs> I finally said, I'm not going to wait any longer, and I pressed the button on the elevator. When the elevator stopped, Ken Hansen got off, and he apologized profusely, and he said his wife had taken sick, and he had to take her to the hospital, and he couldn't get to a phone, which was all true, of course. And he really was sorry, and he says, come on in. And we had our little talk, and I showed him some stills from some movies that I'd done, which is great for radio, radio. right? Yeah. <laughs> kind of impressed him a little bit. And he said, Glenn Hall Taylor is having an audition at 1 o'clock, which it almost was by that time. He says, and he's already called everybody, but come on over there with me. I'm late for getting there myself, and I'll sneak in the audition. I went over there, and they handed me a script, and everybody was sitting out in the hall, Studio C Uh at uh, CBS over by Gower. And it said, for the part I was supposed to do, Western. Jerry Moore came out. He was auditioning, too, for one of the leads. And he came out, and he said, listen, he says... Don't pay any attention to what it says in the script. He says, you just go in there and play Herb Vigran. So I went in there. True Boardman had written it. Uh-huh. And I went in there. I got up and I read it. And the first line out of my mouth, everybody fell on the floor laughing. And I didn't know why. And that was the first time I realized that my voice was just a little bit different than everybody else. <laughs> I really didn't know. Because I was trying to be a dramatic actor, you know. Geek. Geek is geek way to die. What did you think of Fred, Letty? What Zabby said. Why did you visit him at Danamora? My little girl don't visit Geek. Twice, just before he was released. Why, Letty? Business. What business? Oh, don't worry about it, sugar. Just you and I, one minute from now. You got real tired of your partner, Joey Croft, didn't you? Yeah, I got real tired of Joey Croft. It happens to me. Don't you worry about it, Zabby. It takes a long time. Man like Fred, no friends, in prison for three years. A girl like you, a beautiful girl, comes to visit him. Something, huh? Second time I was there, the boys in cell block eight beat their cups against the bars. Sure, I went there, Danny. Had a talk with Fred. It impressed him. Made him promises and got him to kill Joey. Zabby, how long can you stand this, sugar? Wait, wait. All right, sugar. I'll tell you the rest, Danny. Fred killed Joey Saturday when he got out. Then Fred came to me and I gave him a bottle of booze for his trouble. When I sent him away, he felt like a man. That's how drunk he was. 
then wandered over to see a girl he'd known a long time ago, Nora Forrest. He could face her now. He'd accomplish something. He died. Let's go, Letty. Sit there, honey baby. You police fellow, Letty don't go with you. She do nothing. She bought herself a murder. You do that, Letty? Get him. Break him for me, Zabby. Like he used to do to chains. Yeah. He's spoiling your party, Zabby. Get him. Such thing to do to geek. Get him. You're not pretty anymore. Take her away, police fella. It's the happy time on Broadway. It's after the movies. Nobody wants to go home. It's a place strung against the night like a phosphorescent alley. And they're heaped there. The golden girl, the bright-eyed kid, the man with promises, and the guy who believes in It's Broadway, the gaudiest, the most violent, the lonesomest mile in the world. Broadway. My beat. Unfortunately, dramatic radio was in decline. In 1950, 46 network shows had an average rating higher than a 10. Two years later, there were only four. Coney Island was suffering a similar fate. In 1949, Robert Moses had much of the land rezoned for housing projects. He also moved the boardwalk back from the beach several yards, demolishing many structures, including the city's municipal bathhouse. Moses would clear several blocks of amusements for both the New York Aquarium and the Abe Stark Ice Skating Rink. More land was taken by Moses than needed, and for decades much of the old amusement area surrounding the boardwalk was a mess of vacant, weed-overgrown lots. In 1950, electronic games at Coney's Arcades were banned. Four years later, the old Feltman's Restaurant, predecessor to Nathan's, was auctioned. Although Broadway is My Beat was noted for its gritty plots and tremendous narrative, the show failed to generate much sponsor interest. It limped on, scheduled erratically, and dropped often, before finally going off the air after the August 1st, 1954 episode. Mary, no! God, let like, go! I simply don't understand it. Of course, the sound is coming from the basement. It's all right, I've got you, Mr. Adam. No, no. Show me what? Gotta get away from those eyes! Get away! Get away! George, get away. no! Are you attracted to the dark? Fascinated by the dramatic? With a side of gruesome and a dash of poetic justice? If your happy place is a gloomy room at midnight, then you should be listening to the podcast 
twelve chimes it's midnight. Please join us, won't you, for plays of mystery, horror, and suspense. Find us and subscribe wherever you procure your podcasts. And remember, at midnight, anything can happen. can only cause trouble, I'm sure. Let us see. I ho alas, the lack of day, Falstaff's here to make you gay. What, um, what new poems come hot from your griddle tonight, Falstaff? When summer comes. How does it go? When summer comes and the hot winds blow, I pack a lunch and away I go. Down in the subway, the BMT, it's yoinks away to the open sea. First in the briny, I splash my feet. Then on the sand, I sit and eat sardines, dry bread, frozen custard, popcorn, ice cream, hot dogs with mustard. Then lying back in my bathing suit damp, I moan and I groan, getting cramp after cramp. Where else can you swim and get tanned half bare by an ocean beach for a five-cent fare? You can have the mountains, dude ranch, and spa. Give me Coney Island. It's Shangri-La. <laughs> As the golden age of radio was drawing to a close, the last big-budget episode of Suspense, radio's outstanding theater of thrills, aired on June 7, 1954. Suspense, presented by Autolite, tonight's star, Mr. Peter Lawford. Next Tuesday night, June 15th, we will continue with a new series of suspense programs. At that time and through the summer, we hope that you will join us and that we will be able each Tuesday night to keep you in suspense. Suspense is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis with music composed by Lucian Morrowick and... Autolite was canceling their sponsorship. The advertising dollars had moved to television. Suspense continued on, carried by Hollywood's best character actors, like Lou Krugman. The training area in, in those days of radio, because he had the opportunity of doing as many shows as we did, that itself was a training, and that goes back when you'd start doing 40, 45 shows a week. And actually, I remember one show called 7 O'Clock Final. And they would be writing the show while you were on the air. And the scripts would be coming in page by page. You play this, you play this German character, Spanish, French. And you do it. And you did it, and it was great training. It was great training. You know, you were just expected to do dialects. Yeah. Nobody asked you if you could. They just no, gave it to you and said, do it. <laughs> you can buy Autolite standard or resistor type spark plugs, Autolite stay full batteries, and Autolite original service parts at your neighborhood Autolite dealers. Switch to Autolite. Good night. This is the CBS Radio Network. Nine weeks later, on August 15, 1954, Steeplechase family matriarch Mary Tillyou passed away. She was 84. It's 11.30. The four living Tillyou children borrowed money from their realty company 
to maintain their lifestyles, rather than improve their family business. Although the Arthur Godfrey television show began broadcasting from Steeplechase in 1955, public perception had turned against Coney Island. This is Thursday, April 20, and we're back to 1955. It was now seen as a low-rent, high-crime area. Making matters worse, in 1956, a 16-year-old boy was shot by a friend at the Pavilion Shooting Gallery. The next year, the New York Aquarium opened, where Dreamland Park once stood. That April 22nd, a fire destroyed the Steeplechase Pier. It stayed closed for over a year. Two golden ages were coming to an end at the same time. I think that radio was probably one of the most exciting medias that ever was. The audience had to do a lot of work. I did a great many um, oh, suspense and escape and all of those mm. radio theaters. And the audience really had to build the sets, to create the makeup, to figure out what they thought the people were like, what the ambiance of the drama was like. It was terribly exciting. And almost everybody that I've ever known who has made a success in the theater started in radio. With suspense no longer sponsored, production costs were sustained by CBS. Norman MacDonald and then Anthony Ellis directed. Even though the show was moved frequently, it was still attracting a core audience. I am not one who suffers fools gladly nor accepts much brown-nosing. I want talent. I want ability. And I will go to lengths to find it, and I will also go to lengths to put up with it, as sometimes is necessary. Late 1956, CBS was able to sell individual commercial breaks for suspense at reduced prices. On November 4, 1956, the show moved to Sunday afternoons at 4.30, now directed by William N. Robeson. And the producer of radio's outstanding theater of thrills, the master of mystery and adventure, William N. Robeson. There's a lot of truth in the old saw about the loss of a horseshoe nail resulting in the loss of a kingdom. The tiniest detail can often lead to quite extraordinary results, particularly if the detail is observed by a clever con man with sufficient larceny in his soul. A man like the amazing Dr. Alcazar, who parlayed a piece of string into a small fortune. Listen. Listen, then, as Mr. Vincent Price stars in The Green and Gold String, which begins exactly one minute from now. On June 9, 1957, Suspense broadcast a play called The Green and Gold String, starring Vincent Price as a Coney Island fortune teller. Terrified of it. Most of the stars at Fox, and I mean the great stars like um, Tyrone Power and people like that, when Fox had its own show, there were so few of them who knew how to work on radio. They didn't know how to read. They couldn't sustain it. They couldn't give it a variety. And it had to have a variety and a tremendous excitement to it. Even if it was a very calm performance, it had to have an inner excitement. And now, Mr. Vincent Price in The Green and Gold String, a tale well calculated to keep you in 
suspense. Hey, uh, hey, uh, step this way, ladies and gentlemen. Learn what the future holds for you. As Dr. Alcazar, clairvoyant... That dulcet voice belongs to Abby, my good and devoted assistant who stands outside my studio here in Coney Island and drums up business. Of course, I wrote his feel. And did it pay off one evening last fall? Oh, uh, thank you kindly. Good evening, sir. Uh, are you Dr. Alcazar? Alcazar, indeed I am, madam, at your service. Uh, I'd like a reading, if you don't mind. Hmm. Age 35 to 40, cheap purse, expensive suit, suit too tight and too short, not hers, a hand-me-down accent, British cockney, nervous, hmm, something on her mind, possibly a housekeeper or a lady's maid. I showed her to the chair reserved for customers. It's under a mirror. Ah, they're handy mirrors. <laughs> in here, I sit with all these black curtains. Black velvet, madam, to minimize all distractions. That's your crystal ball? Yes, madam, the mysterious orb in which I see revealed the future as well as the past. But in your case, I think it won't be needed. Your psychic projection is extremely strong. Even now, I can clearly sense that... That what? That you're deeply troubled. Well... In a way, I, I am all upset, like. But, uh, you see, sir, it's a private matter, and... Uh, of course, of course. Uh, may I suggest that you relax as much as possible? Any undue tension disturbs and obfuscates your aura. And in order to obtain closer contact with your psyche, I'd like to hold some personal possession. Oh, no, 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 not your brooch. No personal jewelry. Its intrinsically counteractive density tends to adumbrate the necessary metaphysic radiation. It does? Oh, yes, yes. Uh, perhaps something in your purse, hmm? Or That's another gambit in the little game I play. By leaning back and half-closing my eyes, I can watch the mirror and see the contents of an open purse. In hers, I saw a roll of stamps, a shabby wallet, a half-eaten candy bar... A postmarked envelope addressed to Miss Lily, Lily something or other. A folded, neatly folded sheet of tissue paper, violet colored, wrapped around a length of gift wrapping cord, interwoven strands of green and gold, hairpin, a compact. Will this do? Uh, your compact. Excellent, excellent. Now, to sense the vibration. Your name. Your name... You are named for a flower. Yes, a lily. <gasps> well, I never... You have a fondness for candy, a sweet tooth? Oh, no, I'm just awful. Your present life is bound up with a person of great wealth. I think a woman. <gasps> it's the truth, everyone. You have a highly sensitive anima and are therefore a most sympathetic subject. You are an excellent seamstress and... Uh, and that, madam, concludes the general reading. Oh, is that all? Well, I could go deeper, much deeper, with a special delineation for an additional 50 cents. Uh, shall I continue? All right. Uh, uh, I guess you might as well. Excellent, excellent. Now, if you'll state your problem briefly. Oh? Do 
I have to. Don't you think you'd already know? I see Madam finds it necessary to test me further. Very well. Well, now, I seem to see paper, tissue paper. What a strange color. Almost orchid. Orchid-colored paper and something else. Two colors interwoven, green and gold. Green and gold. Have I mentioned something which frightens you? Oh, yes. Well, now you should have sufficient proof of my powers. And since my time is limited, I suggest you tell me the rest of the details. Hmm? Well, it's about my miss... My sister. My sister and her husband. You see, Sarah, I've just found out that he's deceiving her life and I'm the only one that knows. Uh, The eternal triangle. Oh, no. It's nothing like that. Oh? That's why I... I don't rightly know what to do. The funny thing is that what he's doing to deceive her is making her happy. Now, my problem is, should I tell my sister or should I let well enough alone? I see, I see, I see. You are entangled, madam, in a most unusual psychic web. Now, uh, one moment, one moment. There are widely differentiated karmas here. Two paths lie before you. I see you taking one and then the other, but it makes no difference which you follow. For whatever you do, the result will be the same. And there now, I, I trust your mind is being set at rest, huh? You mean that's all, sir? Apparently all that fate intends you to know, at least for the present. Well, if you say That will be one dollar and a half. I'd forgotten all about the mousy little woman until three days later. Abby and I were having breakfast in the diner near the subway station. I was scanning the morning paper while I half listened to Abby's cheerful and rather witless chatter. This time last year, we was already in Miami Beach. Remember, boys? Mm. We traveled in style, but when yet? This year, looks like we won't even scrape up enough scratch for bus fare. Sure be a laugh if we were stuck here all winter. Lily Morton. <laughs> I thought her last name began with an poor wench that night. What you talking about? Abby, old friend, spare not. We may winter in the sun after all. How come? Look at this picture. Recall that face? Huh? No, why? Three nights ago on Friday, you ushered her into the studio. Oh, one of the suckers, huh? So what's she done to get in the paper? She got herself murdered, poor soul, that's... Same night. Yeah? It seems she worked as a maid up in Rockland County. She took a late bus back there from New York, and walking from the bus to the house where she worked, well, she encountered someone who strangled her. Oh, it's tough. But how does that make us any dough? Listen to this. Gloria Drew, former luminary of the New York stage, now Mrs. Clinton DeVries, today expressed great sorrow over the brutal murder of her personal maid, Lily Morton. Declaring that she wanted to do everything possible to help bring the murderer to justice, Miss Truth said she was posting a reward of $5,000. Five grand? And you know who done it? No, no, but I have a hunch. And I have an idea how, uh... uh let me see now. I need proper clothes, cutaways, striped trousers. For you, a chauffeur's cap should suffice. And we need a car, limousine. A witch? Abby, how much money do you have? What? Working capital to make money, you have to spend money. I've got about 28 bucks and some chicken feed. And I have less than five. I have it. My two $50 gold pieces. With them, we'll have a total you of... You ain't gonna spend them. 
You always said they was for good luck. Uh, so I did, Abby. And here is the good luck I've been waiting for. That afternoon, we arranged to rent a limousine, a 1938 Rose, which I felt exactly suited my persona. We also rented the necessary clothes, and the next day we set out to visit Mrs. Clinton DeVries, nay Gloria Drew. Uh, what's the name of the place? Leonard's Cove. You'll see the sign. Oh, gotcha. You know, I never even heard of this same Gloria Drew. Never heard of her? The greatest Juliet of our century, the theater's fairest ornament for more than a generation. I noticed you had a look around. Merely to refresh my recollection. After all, she's been in retirement for more than ten years. Oh, then she couldn't be any spring chicken. A woman like Gloria Drew is ageless. But it's my guess she's on the dark side of 50. Now, look, Abby, uh, while I'm talking to her, I wish you'd somehow manage to get inside the house. Get acquainted with the servant. Well, huh? Sure, that'll be a cinch. Uh, what should I find out? Anything and everything, but your main assignment is Mr. Clinton DeVries. Although Price was a film star, he'd long had a clause in his contract for radio. The extraordinary thing was the care that went into radio shows. There was a kind of perfection about the radio actor that was extraordinary. It was a very small group of people. And I always felt myself enormously privileged that I was able to join that group because they didn't take everybody in by a long shot. I'm sorry, lady, but it was him or me. Oh. Him or all of us. That was very terse, Abby. Completely to the point. You've really got a grasp for this kind of work. Abby! Abby! Yeah, boss? Look what just arrived in the mail. Oh, oh. oh the dame, Gloria Drews. Has she sent us the five Gs? Take a look. Ten. Ten Gs. Doc, what are we going to do? Well, what do you suggest? Well, uh... I don't know. Uh, we could split it and quit. Each of us do what we want. Abby, you'd let money break up our winning combination. But not me, Doc. Good. Then let's use our hard-gotten games to set you and me up in business. Business? What kind of business? Alcazar Associates, private investigators. With you doing the legwork and me reading the crystal ball, we're a cinch to make a million. On December 26, 1958, George Tillieu Jr. died of a stroke. Many of the older independent concessionaires retired or sold out. Drinking food emporiums offered worse food and higher prices with each passing year. The potential customer base had already discovered plenty of alternative places to spend their leisure. General acceptance, I think you find that things change as you progress. 
not always for the better, but they change. <laughs> Life is constant adjustment to change. I mean, nothing stays as it is. And I'm sorry about that. It is uh, unfortunate that you can't just pick a time in your life where things are going well and the children are at a certain age and you just stop there and just live eternally, but you can't do that. What time of your life, if you could do that, would you want to? Well, I've been so busy. William N. Robeson continued to direct Suspense from Hollywood until after the August 23rd, 1959 episode. Suspense was a very, very important show. I must say that I was not the director of Suspense in its heyday. Bill Spear was. And Bill Spear uh, did not create suspense, but made it the great show that it was. I came along at a time when radio was paring down all of the uh, adjuncts to great production in terms of money for stars, uh, money for cast, money for orchestra, etc., etc. And uh, to give you an example of how grim it was out in 1959... They removed suspense from the West Coast to New York for production in New York in order to save $80 in sound effects technicians. The next week, the show originated from New York. It was canceled on November 27, 1960, revived the following June, and canceled for good after September 30, 1962. The American people got a new toy. The men who owned the toy knew it was going to cost a great deal of money. And so they phased out radio. I told you earlier the story of the $80 savings they would make by moving suspense to New York. This is, they've got down to that. It got down from a 13-piece orchestra, an 11-piece orchestra, an 8-piece orchestra, to a trio, and finally to the organ. So it was that kind of attrition that occurred. And they killed it because you can spin records and you have a disc jockey or you can automate the whole day's programming. You have a newsman and a disc jockey and you operate. Because people went home and looked at their new toy. They weren't listening to radio. And now, as I think I said, you have a generation of people who don't know how to listen, who must have a picture to bolster up there. And they, they missed the beauty of the human voice, which is something I think you always... Uh, well, they missed the beauty of their own imaginations. It's too much effort to think. When that tube is up there, you don't have to think at all. You just sit there and eat that stuff and drink that beer and, and get fat. But, you know, we're never going to pull those men off the moon. No, we got to go now to Mars. I don't know why. You know, you kill a lot of men that way eventually. But once you've made that step, you can't go back. You made the step to television, you can't go back to radio. A lot of us old poops will talk of, as we're talking now, but my 10-year-old son couldn't care less about that. Radio is still a very big medium in England. The BBC does brilliant dramas and marvelous music and dramatizations of the lives of different people as they have done recently mm -hmm. on television. And I still do radio, I, every chance I get. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, now it's cut down to a place where you really don't have time to do mm -hmm. it. There are too many commercials. I remember during the time that radio was sort of drifting out and television was drifting in in Hollywood, we would do remakes of the great shows that we had done in the great days mm -hmm. of radio. And they would be cut so and interfered so by the commercial that they lost their impact. Because radio has 
a continuity that is just marvelous, mm -hmm. as a play does, you know, three acts. The New York City Planning Commission has rejected a proposal by Park Commissioner Robert Moses to spend more than seven and a half million dollars on six new recreation centers. The commission acted unanimously to follow a recommendation of Budget Director Abraham Beam disapproving the proposal. There probably will be some fireworks before the sun goes down tonight. By the 1960s, Coney Island had become a breeding ground for rival gangs. Just visiting became dangerous. People arriving by subway would dash the 1,000 feet to the steeplechase gate. Teenage boys could be robbed. A customer pulled a knife on a park employee, and vandals damaged the go-kart ride along the boardwalk. Frank S. Tillieu, the last of the founder's sons, died on May 7, 1964, leaving steeplechase under the direction of the last daughter, Marie. In August, she announced her intention to close and sell the park. On September 20, 1964, Steeplechase, the last of Coney Island's three great amusement parks, finally closed. Marie Tillieu sold the land to real estate developer Fred Trump. Today, the only structure that marks Steeplechase's place in history is the lone surviving parachute jump, which made its debut at the 1939 World's Fair. Trump sold the land to the city of New York in 1969. In the late 1970s, New York City wanted to open casinos in Coney Island. The prospects created a land boom some of the last remaining amusements were bought and cleared in anticipation. But gambling was never legalized in Coney Island. Much of the land remained abandoned into the 1990s. But it's not as though Coney was deserted. Just ask Gene Shepard. Well, you know, it's just like the second time I went to Coney Island, I'm walking along... And they have a batting cage there. One of these cages where you put a quarter in the slot and this pitching machine pitches ten balls at you. And you stand up old Warren Louisville Slugger. Have you seen that thing? And you swing away at it, ten of them. And you can pick the kind of pitch you want. And you can set the meter. And there's one that says slow lobber. It just throws a lob ball. You know, the kind of fat guys playing the skinny guys at the picnic. This kind of a ball. And then there's an underhand pitch by a left-hander. Slow, easy, comes in right over the plate. But it's not quite a lobber. You can set it all the way on up to Carl Hubble-type fastball. Ryan Dern dusts you off. And and I, I'm standing I'm telling you an exact story. This is, the, this is truly what happened. I'm not embellishing this one bit. I want to see somebody, because I don't have the guts to step up to the plate. But be that as it may... I'm walking along there, you see, and I see this batting cage. Now, this is a thing that has a deep primeval interest to all men. It's, it's, in a sense, is a synthesis of life, which is a challenge, of course. Some machine off there in the darkness throwing fastballs down over the inside corner of the plate. And we'd better swing, boy. You don't get another one. 
And, and it is. It's a synthesis. You put it. Everybody starts out with the same thing. Quarter in a slot. Throw it in there. You put a quarter in the slot. You start out. Everybody starts out the same. Mike Todd, guys living in the Bronx, other guys who learn how to be airplane pilots, guys who play second base for the do- Everybody starts out with the same quarter, see? And I'm, I'm walking along that street in Coney Island. By the way, I'd like to recommend this. If you ever go to Coney Island, go to Coney Island on the days when Coney Island really isn't working. Uh, the kind of off days, like at the end of the season or before the season really begins. Then you, in a sense, get much more of a clear picture of what mankind is up to when he creates these vast seaside Babylonian Bacchanal centers. And I'm walking along and I see this batting cage over there. Now, for those of you who don't know what it is, a batting cage in the Coney Island sense is a cage. It's a big cage. And down at the other end of the cage, let's say the nether end of the cage, there's a big green curtain. And this green curtain says, home run. Or it says, pop up, out, strike out, that kind of thing. You see, wherever you hit the ball and you drive it up against that green curtain tells what kind of hit you got or what kind of out you made. And next to the home plate, there is a home plate down at our end of the cage. Next to the home plate is a rack that has maybe 25 terrible old clubs. They're not even bats, they're clubs, which is incidentally also, I believe, very symbolic of our life. (laughs) So he picks up, the customer picks up one of these clubs, he pays his quarter, puts it in the slot, and sets the machine down at the other end, down there by that green curtain down there is a machine that throws baseballs at you. This is true. You know, this machine does this. And this machine throws baseballs at you, and you can set a dial to determine what kind of balls you want thrown at you. Now, if you were to pick the kind of curveballs you want thrown at you in life, what kind would you pick? I mean, what kind do you hit the best? I mean, assuming that there is an element of chance in everybody's life, no matter how it's worked, what kind of curveballs would you want thrown at you? Well, let me tell you what happens. Generally speaking, you figure that you'd put in the quarter and you'd set the machine to throw these little looping balls that are thrown at you at the skinny guy, fat guy picnic softball game, you know? But the actual secret of it is when you're faced with it, you don't. You really don't. Because every man secretly likes to think that he is a Viking standing at the prow of the ship about to meet the biggest dragon in the Western Hemisphere, and he's going to deal with him as best he can with a very small but very agile, very wiry lance. And so here I'm standing there waiting for some guy to come along, and it's one of those vaguely watery Saturday afternoons late in the season, after the last Ferris wheel rider has sort of disappeared in the distance and the last kid with the Nathan hot dog has disappeared. Coney Island is slowing up, and it's it's the beginnings of October or November or something. There's a little cold air in it. And along comes a little guy. It's a true thing, and I'll, I'll remember this to the dying day. And I'm standing there watching this, and I my mind goes back immediately to this little short fat man who somehow got himself involved with Coney Island on a Saturday afternoon. And so he's working his way down towards the sea, and I'm standing across the street waiting to see who's going to play this batting cage thing. And he stops and he looks in. He looks around and he notes that there are hardly anyone hardly anyone on the street. He can get away with it this time. And by the way, I think most of us, if we were given the choice, would play out our lives in absolute privacy so that no one suspects what we're doing. 
And this is all connected with the concept of original sin. And so <laughs> he's standing there, looking the business over, reaches in his pocket and pulls out a quarter. And he pops inside the cage, throws his quarter in the slot, and looks back at the rack and picks himself out a bat. One of these great big worn clubs with tape on the handle. And it is interesting to note that he picked one of the largest bats in the rack. This little short, round man who had long since passed, had gone past the 45-year milepost long before. He picks up one of these tape bats and steps up to the plate. I couldn't see how he had set the machine. And I figured, you know, naturally, I figured he's going to get this little lobbing ball that flies out from the fat man and the skinny man pitcher there. And the next thing I knew, this machine had let one go. You see, you set the meter, and the end meter all the way over at the end says, Carl Hubble, Bob Feller. That's nothing but a fast, straight ball right over the outside corner of the plate, waist high. And he sets this thing, and it goes, like that. It went past him like a shot, and his bat just moved slightly. He steps up to the plate, kicks the dirt a little bit. He's waiting for the next one. I figured he's going to set the machine again, you know. He's waiting for the next one. He chokes up a little bit on the bat and hunches down over the plate. And you hear the machine go... And it goes into the into the catcher's mitt back of it. They had a big concrete catcher's mitt. And he looks down, steps back out of the box, and hitches up his pants. That's two strikes. Steps back into the box, and this time he chokes up on the bat a little more, hunches over, and I can see all of his old kid baseball playing is coming into the picture again. This time he's kicking the dirt a little bit and hunching his left shoulder down. This time he keeps the bat sort of half over the plate, you know, hunched like Eddie Stanky used to. Eddie Stanky was not a naturally good batter. He just kept the bat hanging out over the plate all the time, and if the ball hit it, well, he was off, you see. That's, that's the way he batted. And this is the way he, the guy's hunched down over there, and, and I can see this guy's been playing life like this all the time. And, and he just ticked it, a foul tip, that skitters off to the left of the plate and into the screen. <laughs> he steps back, he got a piece of it that time. He's got seven more coming now. You get ten balls for a quarter. And suddenly the machine wound up and threw him a change of pace. A small, easy, looping inside curveball, and he missed it. A he swung like that, <laughs> and he stepped back and protested the decision. <laughs> oh, what a beautiful drama of man's inability to cope with his own ambitions. Speaking of ambitions and the inability to cope, this is WOR AM and FM New York. We'll be here until 2 o'clock this afternoon. Well, the sun is set at Coney Island and it's time to go home. Luckily, there's a huge subway terminal at the corner of Stillwell and Surf Avenue across from Nathan's. The area, by the way, is much safer these days and, don't worry, it's not like we'll be alone. That's how it started that night. I instinctively drew back when I saw the gleaming white headlight appear in the tunnel. Rushing toward me out of the dark. I made myself draw back. 
But what I really wanted to do was to throw myself in front of that train. The lights on the shining rails hypnotized me like the gleaming eyes of a snake. in a panic, but that mob, that five o'clock mob poured in behind me and shoved and pulled me with it. I'd been pushed around all day and I I had this awful cold and I hated everybody. That's a terrible thing to say, I guess, but that's the way I felt, like committing murder. I got all the credit in the world. I got taken to dinner every night. (laughs) I got wooed. I got an engagement ring and a wedding ring out of it, so I got plenty out of it. Yes, I got a marvelous man out of it, a brilliant man. And 23 years, he'll say it's 24, don't listen to me. Coming up. But it is coming up, 24 years of marriage. Next time on Breaking Walls. We ride the New York City subway with some of the biggest stars in radio history, like June Havoc and William Spear. The reading material used in today's episode was On the Air, the Encyclopedia of Old Time Radio by John Dunning, Network Radio Ratings 1932-53 by Jim Ramsberg, as well as three tremendous internet resources, Charles Denson's History Project at ConeyIslandHistory.org, David Sullivan's HeartOfConeyIsland.com, and Jeff Stanton's research at Westland.net slash ConeyIsland. On the interview front, Andre Barouche, Larry Dobkin, Lou Krugman, and Herb Vigren were with Spurvac. For more information, please go to Spurvac.com. Hans Conried, June Havoc, Vincent Price, and William N. Robeson were with Dick Bertel and Ed Corcoran for WTIC's The Golden Age of Radio. These interviews can be heard at goldenage-wtic.org. Elliot Lewis and E. Jack Newman were with John Dunning for his 71K NUS 1980s program from Denver. While Vincent Price and Alan Reed spoke to Chuck Shaden, hear their full chats at speakingofradio.com. Fred Allen was a guest of Texan Jinx on November 24, 1954. Connie Boswell was interviewed by Lee Phillip in 1963. And Morton Fine was with Dan Hayfley on August 9, 1988. Selected music featured in today's episode was Under the Boardwalk by The Drifters and Shine on Harvest Moon by Joan Morris and William Bolcom. Special thanks to our sponsors, the Fireside Mystery Theater and 12 Chimes It's Midnight. Find them both on iTunes or at their links in the written credits. I'd also like to thank Walden Hughes and John and Larry Gassman of Spurdback. Listen to their shows on the Yesterday USA Radio Network. Breaking Walls Episode 93 will ride the rails throughout New York City with some of Network Radio's biggest stars. This episode will be available beginning July 1st, 2019, everywhere you get your podcasts, and 
at thewallbreakers.com. In the meantime, if you haven't yet, give Breaking Walls a quick rating on whatever podcasting platform you listen, especially iTunes. And if you've got some spare change, you can become a Patreon supporter for as little as a buck a month by going to patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. So, until July 1st, 2019, my name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls Episode 92, and I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much. <laughs>